0: This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. After a recent series of high-level meetings in London, foreign ministers from the Group of Seven Nations, the G7, calling for greater engagement with Taiwan, sending a clear warning to China not to escalate tensions following a series of military maneuvers by that country's military in the region. It is the latest flashpoint between Western nations and America's allies in Asia. During his speech before a joint session of Congress last month, President Biden offering his own assessment of the economic, political, and military challenges we face with China. Ahead on the weekly, we get two different perspectives on what these challenges mean, as well as the path forward for the Biden administration. Jennifer Hillman is a senior fellow for Trade and the Economy at the Council on Foreign Relations. We will talk with her in about 15 minutes. And in just a moment, a conversation with Dean Chang. He's a senior research fellow at the Heritage Foundation and an expert on the Chinese military. But first, President Biden on the U.S., China, and his message to Congress.
1: We can't be so busy competing with one another that we forget the competition that we have with the rest of the world to win the 21st century. Secretary Blinken can tell you I spent a lot of time with President Xi. Traveled over 17,000 miles with him. they tell me over 24 hours in private discussions with him. When he called to congratulate him, we had a two-hour discussion. He's deadly earnest about becoming the most significant consequential nation in the world. He and others, autocrats, think that democracy can't compete in the 21st century with autocracies. It takes too long to get consensus.
0: That from the president's speech before a joint session of Congress in late April. Dean Cheng is the senior research fellow for Chinese political and military affairs at the Heritage Foundation. And let me begin with those words by President Biden. What did you
2: hear? Uh, I heard a president um, basically saying that uh, one of the great challenges we face is a China that, uh, and I think he accurately describes it, believes that at the end of the day, uh, democracy is far messier, uh, far less able to pursue a consistent policy uh, than the PRC.
0: He obviously put it in very clear terms of the challenges that we're facing. Did you find it unusual that he would do so in that setting before a joint session of Congress?
2: Um, Recognizing that uh, while technically it's not a State of the Union address, um, it serves that function. Uh, No, I think that uh, President Biden was quite correct in taking the opportunity in addressing not only a joint session of Congress, but by definition, the American people uh, to lay out uh, some of the most important challenges that confront us. And I think uh, many, many people would agree, including myself, that China is definitely one of those challenges.
0: And so how do we address those challenges? How do we meet this moment?
2: Well, um, you know, the president has the advantage of having, you know, an entire State Department, Pentagon, and CIA to to give him advice on all of this. But I think that some of the things that are very clear from the last uh, 20 years is that China is, one, not playing by the rules Uh, in terms of economics, in terms of whether it's subsidies or stealing intellectual property. That's probably one of the biggest challenges, because that is literally a drain of billions of dollars uh, all the time. Um, Another aspect is China's growing military. It now has the largest air force and navy in the world. Um, But a third part, and I think he touches on this both in that portion of the speech and elsewhere, is reclaiming American self-confidence. The knowledge that, one, uh, we can beat the Chinese, and two, as important, that we should beat the Chinese.
0: As you well know, one point of clear contention, the military operations along the South China Sea. Can you explain what is going on? And from your perspective, what is China's end game?
2: So, this actually predates the People's Republic of China. Um, In the 1940s, before uh, Mao Zedong won the Civil War, uh, the Republic of China had already laid out uh, the uh, so-called nine-dash line. At that time, there were like 11 dashes. Um, Exactly what those dashes represented, even at the time, wasn't clear. It seems to have been pretty much the limits of Chinese fisheries patrols. But today's China, the China of Xi Jinping, basically is clearly intent on turning that into the de facto borders of China, which means that the entire South China Sea, uh, for all intents and purposes, uh, across which $5.3 trillion of trade moves, would be as Chinese uh, as Chesapeake Bay is American. Um, so the United States and a number of other countries are basically saying not so fast. That's not how the world works. Certainly not how the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea works, which China has signed. So we conduct freedom of navigation operations in those waters to basically say, no, these are international waters and you do not. You cannot call them Chinese territorial waters. Uh, the Chinese, not surprisingly, are very angry about this um, and have at various points intercepted and confronted American ships. We now have a British carrier battle group about to do FONOPS there. A German frigate has recently done FONOPS. Um, so there is a growing sense that much of the world is saying to China, this will not stand. And the Chinese are saying, hold my Mao time.
0: So in terms of an intersection, perhaps militarily, our closest allies in the region include South Korea and Japan. We, of course, have thousands of armed forces in the region. So where is all of this heading?
2: Well, at the moment, it's heading towards friction. But um, I think most people, while worried, are not saying it's heading towards war, Um The real danger here is that as uh, Chinese um, both uh, Coast Guard, naval militia, and Navy ships operate in close proximity with Japanese, American, Australian, British, and other ships, you could have an accident. Um, recently the chinese came within something like you know fifty feet of a u.s. destroyer which when you're talking about ships that are ten thousand tons they don't stop on a dime and they can't turn like a you know like a speedboat so you're talking about very dangerous behavior Um, an example of how things could go terribly wrong was the EP-3 incident from 2001, when a Chinese fighter pilot misjudged uh, his distance from a four-engine turboprop American Navy plane, and the two collided, and the Chinese pilot was killed. Um, So that is one of the big dangers. But in the longer term, the concern here is that China is basically nibbling away, trying to outlast uh, everyone, whether it's the Filipinos and Vietnamese or the Japanese up in the Senkakus or us, so that you know, 20, 30 years from now, they will control all of these waters and our protests will – oh yeah, 20 years ago the Americans used to complain about this, but they're gone now.
0: And of course, that is inherent in how China views the world. We've talked about this with you in the past, but the u s. often looking a few years down the road, as you have aptly pointed out, China is looking twenty fifty, a hundred years down the road. Can you explain?
2: Well, this is one of the things that Xi Jinping, I think, uh, looks upon as a Chinese strength. It's one of the things that that I think President Biden was implicitly warning about. Um, I'm not sure the Chinese really think 100 years down the road, although they like to say they do. But the reality is that because it is an autocracy, um, you don't have to worry too much about uh, changes of policy. Uh, China this week uh, launched the first module of its new space station. This is a project that has been in the works for 35 years. Uh, It is very hard to find an American program that is by choice and has lasted even 15 years. Uh, So this is the kind of thing that the Chinese can do. They can say, "We we as a top leadership, we of the Chinese Communist Party agree, this is what we want to do, and we will just keep plugging away at it year after year, decade after decade, until we get what we want. And if we have to pull back a little bit for the moment, if we have to make some nice cooing noises to placate uh, foreigners for a year or two, sure, we can do that. But we are never letting go of our ultimate strategic objective.
0: Let me remind our listeners, we are talking with Dean Cheng of the Heritage Foundation. And let's move from the military issues facing the U.S. and China to the economic and political issues, in, in particular tariffs, many put in place by former President Donald Trump. Where does that stand at the moment?
2: Uh, President Biden came into office clearly intending to change a lot of policies um, with some executive orders uh, uh, initialed by uh, President Trump. Um, As president, uh, President Biden can revoke those, and he has on some of them. But on some areas, uh, especially, for example, um, uh, certain critical technologies, that president trump said we are not going to sell to the chinese anymore uh... microprocessors in particular um, it would appear that president biden has concluded that actually that's a pretty good set of policies to keep in place i think overall president biden has um... and his secretary of state anthony blinken has specifically said this has concluded that actually on china many of president trump's policies were the right ones um, the chinese need to be uh... Informed, if you will, uh, there needs to be a clear signal to them that a lot of their predatory economic behavior will not stand.
0: And what about the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership? Where is that at the moment?
2: Uh, At the moment and probably for the foreseeable future, it remains dead. Um, The reality is that uh, neither Republicans nor Democrats um, seem to be willing to go into the kind of real, Bare knuckle, bruising fight that would be involved in trying to pass a new treaty of any sort, but in particular a trade uh, treaty, a free trade treaty, um, that uh, would antagonize a lot of Democratic Party uh, interests, and which even Republicans at this point, many of them, are questioning. Um, So at this point, I think that TPP 4 at least going through the 2022 congressional cycle, um, is probably uh, not going to be brought up. Now, that doesn't keep, however, President Biden and the U.S. Trade Representative's office from negotiating bilateral trade agreements. And I think that there is the prospect of one potentially with Japan, um, uh, one not related to the Pacific is with the U.K., um, and uh, possibly with other uh, key Asia-Pacific partners.
0: And as you heard from President Biden, he talked about his relationship, his longstanding relationship with President Xi Jinping over the years, in part when he served as vice president in the Obama administration and Xi Jinping was second in command in China. How can we best understand this Chinese leader? What can you tell us about
2: him? Well, Xi Jinping uh, grew up, as did his entire generational cohort, um, amidst the uh, great proletarian cultural revolution, uh, a decade when China essentially uh, went crazy, when universities were shut down and uh, teachers of all types, from elementary and high school to college professors, were sent to the countryside uh, to learn through labor. And so they spent uh, many years um, literally working behind a water buffalo, pulling a plow. Or working in a factory uh, on lathes, um, when China's best and brightest, uh, many of them were beaten to death or tortured. Um, so it was a period of of mass uh, upheaval. Um, so Xi Jinping grew up in in that period. Uh, it's useful to note that in many ways he is China's first leader not to be designated. His two predecessors, Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, were both picked by Deng Xiaoping as Deng's own successor. So Deng basically said, Jiang Zemin, you will succeed me, and Hu Jintao, you will succeed Jiang Zemin. So Xi Jinping came to power through old-fashioned politics, uh, more so than having somebody very senior saying, and hey, you will succeed Hu Jintao. Uh, the third thing to keep in mind is that um, he has been remarkably ruthless. Uh, He has uh, succeeded in getting term limits revoked for one of his three positions, the presidency of China, the premiership. Uh, But it's important to note it's the only one that had term limits. So he is general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, the most important role. He is premier of China now without term limits, and he is the head of the Central Military Commission, the military leader of China. In the ten years he's already – or eight years he's already been in power, nine years – he has purged for want of a better word thousands of military officers senior officials junior officials mostly on charges of corruption but in most cases also people who were at some level opposed to either him or his policies when you say purge what do you mean Well, one of the things about um, China is that it is not the Soviet Union. When Stalin purged people, uh, he stacked them like cordwood, their corpses. Uh, In many cases here, we are looking at people who um, have been basically put in jail, Um, in some cases uh, under house arrest. In many many cases, they have lost uh, their fortunes. The the reality is that many of the charges of corruption are correct. Um, But uh, only in relative, it seems that in relatively limited cases of the people charged with corruption have been uh, openly executed. Uh, now let me note here that this is not because uh, Xi Jinping is a uh, you know a kinder gentler version of Chinese communism. He has had no compunctions, for example, jailing millions of Uyghurs uh, or cracking down on dissent in Hong Kong. Um, but uh, in terms of of within the CCP, it's mostly been uh, removing people and arresting them, demoting them. Um, cashing them out of the party, which effectively uh, eliminates their ability to hold any kind of senior position.
0: So let me conclude with this question on all that we have talked about today. What's the biggest challenge the U.S. is facing in trying to deal with China?
2: China knows what it wants. Uh, As Xi Jinping puts it, the China dream of the great revival of the Chinese people. And what that means is that Xi Jinping sees a China that is going to return to being the dominant power in Asia, and a major power, if not the major power of the world, by 2049, the 100th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China. And there's no real question within Xi's mind, the Politburo, or the Chinese Communist Party in general, that China deserves to be the power of Asia, and a great power, if not the great power of the world. The United States is confronting, therefore, a adversary, um, a competitor, uh, who knows what it wants and is going to be pretty ruthless about getting there and doesn't question whether it deserves that or not. We are going through a very tumultuous period here at home, which is raising real questions about our self-confidence. I don't doubt that we have the ability to compete with China. I wonder whether we have the confidence to create the will to compete with China.
0: An issue that we will very likely come back to you often in the weeks and months ahead. Dean Cheng, Senior Research Fellow for Chinese Political and Military Affairs. His work available at Heritage.org. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. This is C-SPAN's The Weekly, and we turn from some of the military issues regarding the U.S. and China, to the political and economic issues. And for that, we turn to Jennifer Hillman. She's a senior fellow for trade and international political economy at the Council on Foreign Relations, also a professor at Georgetown University's law school. Let me begin with the economic challenges that we're facing with China. And is the U.S. prepared to meet those challenges?
1: Well,
3: again, I think the challenges from China are huge. uh, And the answer is not entirely, is the United States ready to compete? And I say that because China has been able to do a number of things that have presented huge competitive problems for the United States. First, they've been able to create real national champions in China, huge corporations that are now exporting their goods and their services around the world. And they've been able to do that through their kind of particular model in which they have brought in technology from the West sometimes legitimately, but oftentimes by forcing a transfer of that technology or even stealing the technology. And then once they have that technology, they've been able to use their very large domestic market in China to work to perfect the technology, to create bigger and better and more effective corporations. Much of that on the backs of subsidies, government grants and government provisions of Money and land and other resources. And then once those companies that have grown and they've grown behind a kind of protected wall in China, in other words, while they're growing these companies, they are not facing international competition. And then when that process is sort of finished, China has then turned around and exported those goods. And what we've seen in sectors like steel and aluminum is that China has created tremendous overcapacity in those products. So as they then flood the markets around the world with their products, it pushes down the price for everybody. So it starts harming American steel workers and American aluminum workers to have to compete with this unfairly traded, highly subsidized product coming out of China. So that's kind of one whole lane of very significant concerns with respect to our relationship with with trade and China.
0: Let me pick up on that point because you have testified extensively on Capitol Hill and we have covered it. It's available in the C-SPAN video library on the issue of trade secrets, the theft of those secrets and other intellectual property. How does China get away with this? How do they do it? And how is the U.S. able to
3: respond? So in terms of how do they do it, um, obviously, it takes different forms depending on what the intellectual property or the technology is. But a lot of the way in which China did this was by saying that if you wanted to do business in China, you had to form a joint venture. Uh, you were not allowed to 100 percent own anything in China. And that was where things started out. So, you would end up with a joint venture partner. And then, as part of that joint venture arrangement, often you either had to or were coerced to or were persuaded to transfer a lot of the know how to make the good or the technology that went into the product to that joint venture partner. Well, now that technology is, you know, sort of is in there in the Chinese market. And even though there might have been private agreements with, between joint venture partners not to do that, we know that a lot of that technology ended up being more widely dispersed within the Chinese economy. Other parts of it were just straight-up theft. I mean, just straight-up, uh, you know, China would, uh, in essence, go in and take computers of companies and, and, and download things from the hard drive. Others were, again, a very blatant theft of intellectual property rights. So, you know, it could take an entire range of, of you know, sometimes a very cooperative transfer of technology all the way over to, to straight-up theft. That's how they got the technology.
0: So they're cheating the system.
3: Yes, they're cheating the system. And, and partly, this is one of the things that is clear, is that when China joined the World Trade Organization in 2001, among the many promises that China made is that it would not condition licenses to do business in China or investment decisions on the transfer of technology. So enforcing this kind of technology transfer they are clearly violating their WTO commitments and may very well be violating the internal you know domestic contract that has been issued between various joint venture partners. So then how
0: does the WTO respond? What tools do they have in their arsenal?
3: Well again this is one of the things that has been difficult is that many countries and I would put the United States in this camp as well have been it occasionally reluctant to bring cases against China. Uh, And part of that reluctance has been because it's very difficult to get the evidence that you need. Again, China is a very non-transparent economy. They don't publish a whole lot. It's hard to get the kind of evidence that you need, particularly in the intellectual property realm. To prove a case becomes very difficult. And secondly, a lot of companies have been reluctant to bring actions or to urge the United States government. It is the United States government that would bring an action at the WTO. But companies have been reluctant because they fear retaliation by the Chinese. And the Chinese do retaliate and retaliate swiftly. I mean, we've seen it very recently where Australia said they think there should be an investigation in how the coronavirus got started in Wuhan. And immediately, China slaps on tariffs on a whole lot of Australian product from being shipped into China's market. So everyone around the world has seen this behavior of China to immediately retaliate. And as a result, companies are very reluctant uh, to say, yes, you can use my data. Yes, you can use my evidence. Yes, I'll put in information that you need because they fear a retaliation against their operations in China.
0: As you know, President Biden talked about these challenges in his speech before a joint session of Congress. David Sanger of The New York Times saying, quote, competition with China, the subtext of the president's call for action. But he says casting the struggle as democracy versus autocracy oversimplifies what's ahead. So to that point, what is ahead when it comes to China's economy, the U.S. economy and trade between the two countries?
3: What is clearly ahead for the United States is the challenge to make our own economy more competitive. Because part of the problem is that we're seeing in market after market, and particularly in the markets that China is moving into with its Belt and Road Initiative, is that oftentimes the United States does not have um, a competitive alternative to offer. And so countries even reluctantly are turning to China if they do not have a better offer on the table. 5G technology in telecommunications is a perfect example. Uh, The United States has made it very clear that they are extremely worried about Huawei, the large Chinese company that produces and sells 5G. And indeed, they're selling it all over the world. And the United States has now said to many of its friends and allies, don't buy Huawei 5G because Huawei is at some level connected to the Communist Party and there is a significant concern that any of the data that moves over 5G networks could end up in the hands of the Communist Party. Don't use Huawei. The problem is the United States has no 5G of its own to offer. So we are constantly being put in the position of trying to fight something with nothing. So what is clearly ahead of the United States is a huge effort to become more competitive ourselves. Um, And you see this not just in the need to be first at 6G and to be better in the artificial intelligence area and in many other technologies. You see it also in renewable energy, where, again, it is imperative that the United States win the fight over being first and best at providing and distributing renewable energy around the world. And yet if you step back and look at it right now, who are the major producers of solar energy? China. Who is the largest producer of wind turbines? China. Who is the largest producer of hydropower? China. So we have got to become more competitive in these critical new technologies so that we can compete and can offer a better alternative.
0: We are talking with Jennifer Hillman. She is with the Council on Foreign Relations. And of course, you can't talk about that without putting a price tag on that. And the debate here in Washington is the trillions that the Biden administration already is spending. So is there a political appetite for spending in these areas by Congress, by Democrats and Republicans?
3: I think for me, one of the areas where there is clear bipartisan agreement is that the United States must mount an aggressive response to China. I think on both sides of the aisle, uh, members of Congress are clearly coming to the view that we need a clear, a comprehensive, and a very strong strategy in order to counteract the competition that we see coming from China. So yes, I think there is bipartisan support. And I think increasingly, sort of study after study and report after report is indicating that that is going to involve you know, both a pushback on China, but more importantly, a significant investment in American competitiveness. And that means supporting research and development. That means supporting much more education, particularly in the STEM area, beginning at the very beginning. That's going to mean more support for uh, the bringing in, attracting and retaining the best talent we can get, including from around the world, But it is going to take a whole-of-government approach, and it is going to take a lot of private-public partnerships. So all of this does not have to be done on the backs of of, uh, U.S. dollars, U.S. taxpayer dollars. Um, And in fact, uh, the report that the Council on Foreign Relations recently uh, released on China's Belt and Road Initiative makes it very clear that what the United States should not do is try to respond dollar for dollar to what China is doing. Rather, what what the United States needs to do is to be very strategic in what in which region specifically, in which countries and in which technologies is it essential that that American flag be planted. And that's where we need to make the investments to ensure that we have that American presence in those critical technologies and in those critical regions and countries of the world where we need an American presence.
0: That report, by the way, is available at CFR.org. Let me go back to that phrase, Belt and Road Initiative. Explain what that is.
3: Sure. The Belt and Road Initiative was begun in 2013 as uh, China's President Xi Jinping's sort of signature foreign policy initiative. It is designed to create greater connectivity between China and all of its neighbors, It is modeled off of the ancient, way back in the Marco Polo days, you know, the ancient silk and maritime roads that ran between Europe um, and China. Fundamentally, it is a plan to build ports and roads and railroads and power plants and electricity grids across the region that used to be covered by China's by the ancient silk roads. But what we've seen in looking at it is the Belt and Road Initiative has now expanded far beyond its original borders. It now covers 139 countries. It is now prevalent in Latin America, in much of sub-Saharan Africa, in the Middle East, in the Southeast Asia areas. So China, the Belt and Road itself has become much bigger. It also has pivoted as a result of COVID away from a focus on hard infrastructure, those ports and railroads to a heavy technology-oriented Belt and Road. So this is where you're now seeing a so-called digital Silk Road that is part of the process of building all of these telecommunications systems, as well as a FinTech, a financial technology road, where you are seeing China make huge inroads into everything from electronic payment systems to blockchain ledgering to all of the things that connect into that financial technology space to now a health Silk Road where China is using its relationships with its BRI partners as part of its vaccine diplomacy and its mask diplomacy, where it is deploying a lot of its production of, of vaccines and of PPE equipment and of ventilators and all of that to its BRI country partners.
0: So if you could summarize and complete this sentence The state of relations between the United States and China when it comes to the economy and trade is what?
3: Highly competitive.
0: And so we need to do what in order to stay competitive?
3: We need to remain at the cutting edge of producing the best and highest quality technology-based products. We need to be doing a better job of supporting our companies that need support when they go in terms of export finance. We need to be investing in American competitiveness, and we need to be supporting a much more robust commercial diplomacy around the world. You know, if we look at a lot of the countries that have accepted these BRI contracts, and you sort of step back from it and say, why? Why did you accept these contracts? Because for many of the countries, they are taking on debt that they cannot afford, And they are taking on the development of a project that often involves almost entirely the use of Chinese labor. So there's very little transfer of skills to any of these countries. There's very little use of local labor, so they're not creating a lot of jobs. So they're leaving these countries at the end of the day, yes, with a road, but nothing else and with a large debt burden in order to pay for it. So the question then comes to these countries, well, why didn't you go elsewhere? Why didn't you look elsewhere? Why didn't you seek an alternative? And the truth is, this is where the United States needs to make a a major shift by significantly increasing the amount of technical assistance that it provides at the beginning end of these projects to help countries understand exactly what would they be getting and how much would it cost them if they were to choose China and a Belt and Road project versus what might be available from a U.S. company or a consortium of companies that would care about whether or not they are helping develop labor and skill transfers, that would do an environmental impact assessment first, because China is not doing that. And what we've found is when we do this, we can have a lot of success. For example, in Myanmar, uh, they were getting ready to uh, look at the development of a port. Uh, and when the United States sent in its team of economists, diplomats and lawyers, Myanmar was able to negotiate the cost of the port down from $7.3 billion to $1.3 billion. So again, we're able to convince countries that they need to be careful about the way in which they're approaching their BRI contracts.
0: Our conversation with Jennifer Hillman. She teaches law at Georgetown University and is a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations here in Washington. Thank you for your time.
3: Thank you. It's a pleasure.
0: And a reminder, this podcast is available wherever you get your favorite podcast. And be sure to follow all of our coverage online anytime at cspan.org and on Twitter at c Radio. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. We thank you for listening.